0: Of my lesson is humanity demands. I suppose it's a never ending debate. Let's turn it on. Sorry, I suppose it's a never ending debate that we have between the Christian and their attempts to reach the unbeliever. Of course, it all begins with a Christian who um, goes and has some kind of outreach program to reach those unbelievers and and put forward the, the proposal that the Bible is the word of God and we can draw closer to him by reading the Bible. And of course, the um, the debate bounces back to the unbeliever who says, oh, well, I want some kind of evidence before I believe. And then what happens? It goes back to the, um, the Christian who supplies some kind of evidence in some form or other, and even to the point where the evidence comes in the form of demand, if you like. And so, as you will realise over the past uh, month, we've been looking at these demands that Christians have put in the in the court of the uh, unbeliever to to you know respond to those demands. And of course, we had a look over the month about how a life demands a life giver. We had a look at another demand, how the design demands a designer, and we had a look at. Morality demands that there be a moral lawgiver. And the last one we had to look at last week was the Bible's supernatural attributes demand a supernatural author. All right, so here yeah, we have this debate going on, to and fro. Who makes the next move? That's the question. You would think, all right, the ball is in... We're we the last ones who've made demands, right? The ball is now in the unbeliever's court, is it? It's their chance to respond. Because they demanded, and we counter-demanded. It. So it's in their court, right? Yet, somehow, nothing seems to happen. There doesn't seem to be any some you know, large-scale commitment on their part or response on their part... <laughs> Uh, that leads to something. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 14. It says this. For many are called, but few are chosen. Maybe that's something that we just have to accept. Is that right? That we will go through the effort of calling many, reaching out to many, but... The success ratio is like few to many, only a few people are going to respond and then maybe even later on a few of those will drop away as well. Is that the kind of ratio we should expect when we go through these efforts of reaching people or do we need to investigate this more? Do we need to look further in what needs to be done, what the next step is in order for this to produce fruits, benefits for both sides? All right, so who makes the next move? I want to introduce another concept into the equation here. We have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. It says, I planted, that's referring to Paul, of course, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So now we think to ourselves in this kind of like a stalemate that we're in. Maybe it's not our move. Maybe it's God's move. Is it God's turn to do something now when we've got, this, got to this point in the debate where things are like nothing's happening? This is this God's move? Is he to shout down from heaven with a loud voice and uh, scare a lot of people? Is that his move? Or is it still our move again where we should now produce uh, more evidence that, than we've already produced uh, thus far? Or is the next move belong to the non-believer? Is it them that needs to do something? Is it them that needs to respond, and add, and continue this debate? There seems to be a stalemate. If We think of all the missions, the campaigns that have happened to reach people, to reach non-believers. There seems to be a point where we reach, yes, there are a number of people who respond, but by and large, The majority of people by far, there's a kind of like a stalemate where nothing is happening, nothing is developing. All right, let's have a look. I'm I'm going to try this in a... a, a, Me just trying to delve into the situation, to delve into the stalemate situation to try to find out why is it that we get to this point. Uh, So let's look into why the majority of non-believers always seem to want more than the evidence that you've presented to them. Now, I might warn you ahead of time, the why may not be what you think. All right. Let's say, let's start somewhere. All right. Let's say uh, the non-believer does not believe in God because there is no evidence. So we're starting from the beginning here, right? All right. And he says, and this is not a quote from anybody, by the way. It's just like, I don't know what you call it. It's a, a quote that's put together from typically what people would say uh, in this situation, non-believers. And it was just kind of like putting it together in a sentence. Unless you show me evidence, I simply won't believe. All right, so that's the, kind of like the, the demand, if you like, that humanity has. And so what do we do? We jump to attention and we present this evidence and we go and we we get prepared to give them an answer and we present that evidence. Now John chapter 4, verse 48, and this part of the passage that we are reading today, it talks about unless, and this is Jesus' observation of the people, this is very early in his mission, his three-year mission or ministry, And this is what he has noticed straight away from the way people react to the things he says and the things that he does. He says, unless you see signs, you simply won't believe. And that's not only a situation that occurs back then, thousands of years ago, but it's something that occurs today. If you don't show me signs, if you don't show me, today we don't call it signs, we call it evidence, don't we? I simply won't believe. And so we give them all the, the, um, all the information on how there's so many eyewitness accounts that attribute the Gospels, that talk about Jesus, his life, the things that he did, and how he came to earth to make a difference. We can talk about those things, but they still don't. All these signs and evidence we can show them, but they still don't believe. So I reckon there's something deeper going on than just evidence, science, something deeper going on. And go with me, if you will, today on this journey to try, go deeper, to find out what it is that's going on under the covers, why we have this outcome, this stalemate. Maybe it's a lack of belief because the evidence is not conclusive, perhaps. Should we consider that? Although, the reality is, you cannot prove conclusively that God exists. That doesn't leave place for faith, does it? So you can't prove conclusively that God exists. And even if we could, I somehow don't think it will help, because we have examples of this. And... Jesus in his, during his ministry, provided lots of evidence by the things that he said, by the things that he did. He provided a lot of evidence that the message that he spoke was from God. Yeah, we have a passage of Scripture. I think we touched on. Adrian touched on it last week as well. John chapter 12, 9 to11. The large crowd of Jews then learnt that he was there, and they came not on account of Jesus only. But so that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Obviously, a bit of background to this story is that Jesus had healed somebody and. The evidence, or rather had resurrected them from the dead, they're kind of like the ultimate example of of healing, a sign, you know, conclusive evidence. You raised someone from the dead. And how is it that they reacted to this? Well, we have a look here, and it does tell us fair enough that some people did respond, it did result in some people believing, but when we talk about the Jewish leaders... We talk about those people in control of the times. They were the ones who did not believe, but not only did they not believe in this conclusive evidence, scriptures are telling us out plainly, they tried to destroy the evidence by killing Lazarus again, so that they couldn't make that claim. Of course, well, you healed, you rose who from the dead? He's dead, Lazarus is dead. They were, their plans were to destroy that evidence, to kill to kill Lazarus so is it still possible that people won't believe because the evidence is not conclusive not in this case there was conclusive evidence but that was not the outcome they did not believe again there must be something deeper that's going on and let's let's carry on on this journey trying to find out what it is what's the What's the root cause? What's happening here under the covers that maybe is not very visible to us or that we don't understand? What is going on here that results in people not believing where even they are presented with conclusive evidence? Perhaps they don't believe because the evidence is not scientific. A lot of people are governed by science, aren't they? It's kind of like, would you say it's fair to say it's a religion? Science is a, I would say it's a religion, actually. But being able to prove God exists by means of science, I'd present to you as a bit of a paradox. Because there's something about science uh, that we need to know. If we need absolute evidence, and that's what people are looking for, there's absolute evidence that God exists, right? How can we get absolute evidence by means of science, because as history tells us, science is not absolute. Science makes so many mistakes in the things that it presents as evidence, if you like, to prove something. So the difference between fact and theory is sometimes very, very blurry. Um, You would think facts are concrete, solid, But sometimes that difference between theory, which is something unproven, and fact is sometimes blurry, and a perfect example is evolution. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, it was known as the theory of evolution, wasn't it? The theory of evolution, but somewhere along the line, I don't know, I must have missed it, perhaps it's like driving in a car and uh, you, you blink and you miss a small town along the way. I don't know, that might have happened with me, but somewhere along the line, it turned from the theory of evolution to the fact of evolution. Somehow, and now I believe it's taught in universities, I think it's taught in the schools as well, um, somehow it's become a fact. So this idea of fact and theory is a bit of a blurry one. Science is not absolute for this very reason, because of how blurry it could be. Science relies very much on observations. So that's, you do a test, um, whatever it is, a lab experiment or some kind of test that you're doing, and the outcome of that test is observed either by something that you see or something that you hear, or some of the other senses, right? It's based on our senses and what we perceive the results of that test to be. But of course, even our senses let us down, don't we? Um, I think of many examples of how we sometimes see things that aren't there. Or we sometimes hear things that are not there. Our senses because of the limits of our mortality, the limits of our senses, the limits. We get old um, or we get obsessed with a certain uh, direction that we want to go into, and sometimes we see or hear things that aren't there. Our senses let us down. Another thing about science is what is a fact today may not be a fact tomorrow. We've got a couple examples. There was something the scientists called... um, I think it was called lumiferous ether. I think that was the, the word they used. I don't know who coined the phrase. Some smart scientist did. And that was believed to be everywhere that you look around. It's everywhere. And it's, it's what explains why a flame can turn into a flame that comes, seems to come out of nowhere. As what they used to explain that. And, of course, you know down the line, uh, generations later or decades later or whatever, it's not a fact anymore. Some other smart scientist has decided that, no, it's not that, it's this. And so that fact falls by the wayside and is replaced by another. Perhaps it's a generational thing. I think even if we could supply some kind of scientific evidence that God exists, it could just be something that lasts for a short period of time until what? People forget. might be five years later, it might be ten years later, maybe the next generation. Those people who either don't remember what they saw before or they are of a generation that never saw that for themselves. And so what does that scientific evidence mean? It means nothing because people have forgotten it. And that I think of the time of the judges, which is a perfect example of this idea of forgetting. Um, the people call out for help and God sends them a deliverer, Samson, whoever it is, as the deliverer, and he comes and he delivers the people with a show of force and power uh, that shows people that God is on their side. That's the evidence they're looking for. And what do the people do? Yes, they're all good. Uh, For a while, for that particular generation, they follow God and, and his decrees and everything. And then what happens? The next generation comes, everyone forgets about God, and we start back from square one again. People are on evil and wickedness. It's kind of like a repeating cycle that happens. So scientific evidence, I don't think that cuts it either. Again, let's carry on this journey. There's something deeper going on. There's something deeper going on that explains why people do not want to believe in God despite all the evidence. All right. Here's a popular one. I don't believe in God because I don't think there's any way we can prove God. I don't think it's our job to believe in God. Maybe he should be reaching us and not us reaching him. A lot of people have that kind of like negative attitude that I don't trust that there is any way that we can find him anyway. So we don't need to do anything. Mankind does not realize, and this is the bottom line, that they can prove the existence of God. They can. There is a way to do it. Although, if you want to discover, if you want to search for a spiritual God, well, you need some kind of spiritual tool, don't you? Doesn't that make sense, spiritual God, spiritual tool? I know you get all these, these people who are looking for ghosts in their lives. You know, they've got, um, they've got some weird contraptions they, they have where uh, Geiger Meter, or I can't remember what they call it, it's a, some kind of contraption that works out when the, a spirit a ghost is floating around and it makes the needle move or something. They believe they've got some kind of tool. But the, the truth is, if you're looking for something on the spiritual side, You need a spiritual tool in order to find it. I've got a magnifying glass here. that has got a light as well. It's a good tool. It's a useful tool if you're a forensic scientist, maybe. Or if you're looking to read the fine print in your contract, have a look there. Or if you're elderly, maybe a good tool to use. But if I said to you, hey, I want you to explore that spot on Jupiter where the storms occur. I want you to explore that and describe that to me. But yeah, this is the tool you've got to use. This one here. Well, if you look at the magnifying glass, you look up in the sky, I don't think you can describe the that stormy spot on Jupiter with this. I don't even think you can see the spot on Jupiter with this. I don't even think you can see Jupiter using this. The point is, this is the wrong tool. You're not going to find what you're looking for if you use the wrong tool. We need spiritual tools. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 describes to us what those spiritual tools are that we need to use to find God. Faith comes by hearing the message or begins with the word of God, that tool, that tool that we use. That leads us to faith. And with those tools, then we stand a chance to find God. But somehow, despite presenting people with Hey, you want to look for God? Here we are. That's the tool. That's one of the tools that you can use. Despite doing that, I mean, it's not like you're telling them to go find something uh, that, you know, and you don't know where it is. Here we are. Here it is. Here. I've got a tool for you that you can use to find God. But despite this, they're not prepared to use to learn these recommended tools that are needed to find God. And they're not prepared to trust these tools to find God the idea is why why would they not want to use the correct tools, why would they still persist in using tools that are inadequate and will not get them what they're looking for, why again, let's carry on this journey, there's something deeper going on there's something deeper than just, you know, how they go about doing things and making their demands, this and that. Scientific evidence is something more going on here. There must be a reason why they don't want to use these tools. Is it a question of commitment? Is belief in God too big a commitment? Okay, you know, when you give somebody this tool, and you say you can find God with this, maybe that will scare some people. Look how thick it is. That's quite a thick book. Maybe that they look at that and they say, "Well, oh, oh, looks like a big commitment to me. I don't want to go that way. Ever heard of gamophobia? Used to be a term described to explain the fear of getting married. But uh, in modern times it's The meaning is kind of broadened to be a, a fear of any kind of commitment, really. A marriage is a commitment, so are many other things in life. Maybe people have gamophobia. Maybe it's just a question of commitment. And that's why they're stopping short on their journey to find God. Maybe it's not about evidence at all. Maybe it's just about a lack of commitment. I would say that, yeah, perhaps in some cases, yeah, That could be quite scary, looking at a thick book like that and saying, well, I probably have to expertise myself in this book before I can find or, or get a return on my investment and get some results. Maybe. Maybe in some cases. But there's a problem with this idea. There's a fundamentally flawed problem with this idea that mankind has no commitment. Would you say a scientist does not have commitment? I would definitely not say that. You can get evidence of that. Many commit, you know, five years of their lives, ten years of their lives, or their whole lives to try and prove something, some theory, some scientific law that they believe in. They spend their entire lives trying to prove that. If that's not commitment, I don't know what is. Some people even risk their lives or even lose their lives trying to prove a theory that they strongly believe in. Now, that is an ultimate form of commitment, if you like. A couple of examples. They had a, I'm not sure what you'd call it, a car plane or a plane car, I'm not sure. It looks like an almost sedan car. And some two brothers, bright spark scientists, they got... Wings, and they put it on the car, and uh, I don't know what the mechanics were involved in that. Obviously, the wings had the right kind of shape or whatever, and their idea was that they could um, make cars fly. You know, it would be a wonderful form of transport, wouldn't it? If you could, your car could just turn into a plane, and uh, you can, or maybe then a submarine or whatever. But the point is that they believed so much in this concept that they they were the ones that tested it. And as history tells us, they lost their lives in that endeavour to prove that cars could fly. Another example: the one, uh, the person who is credited with um, inventing the parachute. All right. Well, there you can you can see what's happening now. Um, the kind of the, the earlier models of the parachute had sort of like a design a bit different to what we have today. But they believed in their product so. This person believed in this product so much that he tested it out on himself, because one of the reasons I would think is that he couldn't get many volunteers to do it for him, so he probably had to do it himself. And he jumped from, anyway, as the history goes, he jumped from the Eiffel Tower, some, somewhere high up, and, uh, well, he fell to his death in trying to prove something that he believed in. So if mankind doesn't have a problem with commitment, a level of commitment, Why is it that he can't commit to these simple tools to find God? Again, please carry on this journey with me in trying to go deeper into the rabbit hole to find out why is it still that mankind will not believe? Perhaps it's a a more broader reason than a specific fear the fear of commitment. Maybe it's some other fear. Now, I don't know if you knew, but mankind has more than 500 different fears. Now, when, when you say 500, that just means that there are 500 fears that have a word associated to it, and it normally comes from a Latin word or Greek word or whatever, and that describes this fear close enough. Five. 100 different fears. I would say that this pretty much governs the life of mankind, isn't it? These fears. And apparently there are five, I'm not sure what they are, I think one is fear of heights, and there may be other fears as well, but there are five core fears that we all have in common. And then all the other five, rest of the 500 or so plus, um, we have two different varying degrees, and we have different ones um, depending on our circumstances and our lives. How's one here. Just have a look at a few of them. Well, certainly you not going to list 500 of them. Philophobia, the fear of love. And there are going to be some here I can't really pronounce, but just forgive me for that. Anthropophobia, the fear of people. Ooh, that's a hard one. That's a rough one. Atelophobia, the fear of imperfection or making mistakes. Atychophobia, the fear of failure. And that we're talking about fears that uh, manifest themselves in mild ways or sometimes even acute ways. Fear of failure. Agoraphobia, the fear of losing control. Here's another one. persanthophobia, here we go, the fear of trusting, Metathesiophobia. the fear of change, I mean we all can relate to that one, um, the idea of changing. And I can see a couple of those, I can spot a couple of those on the list, especially the last two or three, that give an idea as to how some of these fears in our lives can be a hindrance towards us searching for God. See a couple of those in there. The fear of trusting, especially. Fear of change, for sure. And we have a lot of fears. And they manifest themselves in so many different ways. And since I've been talking to you, maybe another fear has been invented and documented. I don't know. Could this be what prevents us from... Seeking God, pursuing God, looking for evidence that he exists. Could this be what it is? All right, so let's have a look. We want, to, we want to find God in our lives. We need faith. Let's have a look at the pursuit of faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For the one who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he proves to be the one who rewards those who seek him. Very clearly put here that if we want to find God, if we want God to reveal himself to us, it's a step of faith that we need. That's very clear cut here. He's not going to reveal himself to us without faith. We can't stand there and shout insults at God, and be a non-believer and shout insults at God to send us a sign. If we don't have faith, he will not reveal himself to us. The biggest deterrent in developing a faith that allows us to find God, I believe, is fear. It is fear in our lives. And we'll have a look at some examples of this and how this can get in the way of our believing in God. So that, I believe, is the nemesis of faith, fear. But this is not something that only non-believers are susceptible to. Fears are things that we are susceptible to. Maybe, I would hope, as a christian we're less susceptible to these fears hope so, but both atheist and Christian alike are susceptible to the opposite of faith, which is fear let 's have a look at a beautiful example of this war between faith and fear and the, these opposites these contrasts matthew fourteen twenty eight to thirty one this is the context behind this is um, uh, Jesus had been praying, I think, on the mountain. He was separated from his disciples who were in the boat. And uh, now he was reuniting with them. And he did this by, of course, walking on water and going towards their boat, walking on water. Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And when he began to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out with his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Perfect example here of these scales of fear and faith. Um, Peter started off with wonderful faith. I mean... I acknowledge that if you were prepared to take that step of faith onto a watery surface to go and walk out to somebody in the distance there, that is a lot of faith in my books. But we are introduced to new factors that are introduced into life, like the wind, for example. And what did that do? Peter became frightened. There's that fear element. And as that fear started to increase as the wind increased and the danger increased for him, the reality increased for him, as that fear increased, his faith decreased. And uh, Jesus comments on that talking about how little his faith was at that point in time when this happened. So we have fear and we have faith and they are opposites. So let's have a look. What is the what is the purpose of faith? Once we have faith, of course, we can start to address those fears, but where are we going? Where are we going with faith? What else is faith going to lead us to? What else? What else is faith going to lead us to? Before we have a look at that, let's have a look at something from another perspective, from the perspective of science. Science is all about evidence, right? Now, I have what I call, I know what, I think there might be a real term for this, but I call it an evidence scale. Um, where on the left side you have these things that happen that kind of like get stronger and stronger as the evidence gets stronger and it leads you to the ultimate scientific uh, conclusion, if you like. So, first starts with rumors. Rumors are the worst. Source of information. Rumors are the worst um, you can get. No one can trust rumors. But rumor is information, right? But is it fact? Oh, goodness me, I don't know. Rumors are rumors. Why are rumors started in the first place? I don't know. Not very reliable, are they? Then you might get something a bit more reliable on the evidence scale, and that would be opinions. People have opinions. And of, of course, you know, opinions mean whatever they mean, depending on who it is that is expressing their opinion, but if it's somebody who is uh, pretty knowledgeable in a particular area or topic, maybe it's an opinion that starts to hold a bit more weight. So we're increasing in reliability of evidence here. The next one is a theory. When you get to a point where you have enough evidence, a scientist or whoever has enough evidence, to formulate some kind of theory, and of course that theory is something they will uh, work on later on with their research to try and elevate it to a higher category or reliability. So theories are a little bit more reliable, especially if they're by knowledgeable people. Then we get to proofs. Oh, some scientists come up with the idea that he thinks he can prove his theories. And so there's that new category of reliability, if you like, publishes his proofs. And that becomes known or genuinely accepted in society as fact. And fact would be seen as the highest um, point of certainty that you can achieve in terms of science, everyday living. Fact, it's right up there, I suppose. But I'd like to propose that there's something beyond faith. Oh, sorry, something beyond facts. And that's called truth. Truth, I believe, and from a Christian's point of view, truth is the highest form of certainty, the highest form of evidence that there is it's right on the top of the scale but of course it's missing from the scientists you know notes that he has it doesn't have truth on there to him truth means maybe something else there are tools that we can use to pursue truth nothing more clear cut and defined here in John chapter 8 31 to 32 it says this to the Jews who had believed him Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Yeah, we have a clear indication, again, repeating what we've looked at before. Belief, faith, teachings, the word of God, those two things lead us to truth. And then what does truth do? Sets us free. I like to put things into a formula. Sometimes scientific people can understand formulas. Belief plus teachings equals truth. There we go. It's only the truth that can set us free. It's only the truth that teaches us how to deal with our fears. Only the truth can do this. To make a believer out of mankind, we need to help them address their fears. Because that is what separates them from believing what they need to believe in to know that he exists. I'd like to take a look at an example in the Bible of the prodigal son if you want to read along, you can. He's are certainly not going to read that entire passage of 21 verses. But to cut the long story short, the story of the prodigal son goes that the man um, who lives with his father and his other brother, he decides that he wants to leave the house to find out what is out there in the world. And uh, he goes out and he squanders all his money, his inheritance, and things don't really go well according to plan. And he finds himself in a situation that prompts him to say, I want to go home. And the long story short, he goes home and his father welcomes him, welcomes him back. But of course, this is not in reference to a natural person. This is more a parable. This is symbolic of every road that we take as a Christian or non believer. And we go out into the world and we are tempted by its desires and we find our way back to our Father. It's symbolic of this. Let's have a look at this story. I noticed a number of fears that were controlling this man's life uh, as he went through life and trying to find the meaning to life, etc. The first one was, I'm sure we can all have a chuckle, I don't think there is such a a scientific word for fear of missing out, but FOMO is probably good enough. Fear of missing out. Uh, And that was a conclusion he made by looking at his life, running through the same mundane routine every day on a farm or wherever it was he lived. And to him, he felt that there was this massive fear of missing out. There's something out there that I'm missing out on that uh, I cannot have while I'm here, stuck with my father and my family. So he goes out. And then, of course, as things don't work out, And he squanders his money, and what happens? Well, now he's in unknown territory, isn't he? It's the first time he's ever been in a situation where he needs things and he doesn't have them nearby like he did when he was back in his father's house. Now it's the fear of the unknown. What now? Unknown territory. What do we do? Then, of course, things got even worse. He had to find a job. And he ended up in a pig star, living with pigs, eating with pigs. Horrible um, result, horrible outcome. And he had that incredible fear of, look at me now. I'm a failure. In everything that I've attempted to do, I've hit rock bottom. I'm a failure. And somewhere along the line, in the middle of that, we get to that tilting point where we come to our senses. And verse 17 does talk about that, where it talks about, he realizes what he needs to do. This is not working out. He needs to go back home. And also talks about other fears that he had as well. When things got so bad, there was this fear of dying that he had. And there's probably a scientific name for that as well. The fear of dying. He also had these feelings of worthlessness. Because everything he tried did not work. Incredible feelings of worthlessness. And he also had that fear of not being accepted back. You know, he thought, Well, my father's not going to accept me, he's not going to want me back. I am prepared to be a hired hand and not his son anymore. The fear of not being accepted. Look at the life of this shown of this character and this story. Look at how fears controlled that person's life. Humanity might have demands, and some of those demands may be strong, but I can guarantee you that their fears are even stronger than the demands that they have. I can guarantee you that. If we can help those people with their fears, get them to come to terms with the tools that they need to use, To overcome those fears, to connect with them, they can draw closer to God. And it's not only them that need to be on the watch, that that are governed by fears. As I said before, it's us as well. We have fears as well. One of those fears, if we let it get out of control, we could sink like Peter did into the water as we are afraid of the storms and the winds of life that they throw at us, we are susceptible to those as well, and we always need to be on the guard. Now, I don't know what situation you are in here today, or those streaming online. If you are a believer, don't think that you won't have fears. Fears will present themselves in ways that you cannot imagine. And if you are not a Christian, And you take stock of your life and you realize, and you count up, maybe, I don't know if anyone's ever done a list of that. You get a list of all these 500 fears and you tick, yeah, that's me, that's me, no, that's not me, that's me. Take a stock of your life. Have a look at your fears and decide for yourself, how are these fears in some way stopping me from progressing towards something wonderful, getting to know my maker, my creator? That's a question that we ask ourselves. And I'd like you to think about those things. And thank you for your attention, and let's stand and sing the hymn of invitation. Thanks for listening.